In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and Lasanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness and he went into all of the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, his winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. If you had to pick one sentence in scripture to summarize the difference between Christianity and all other belief systems, what would it be? Right, one, one biblical sentence, one scripture. You could say, this verse summarizes why Christianity is completely different from everything else. 
And we've actually had a number of good candidates in the last few weeks worth of Sunday messages, I think. You know, we had Good Friday, which you might look to, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And you'd say, well, that, that wouldn't be uttered in any other religion, would it? Or Easter Sunday, he's not here, he's risen. And we'd say, yes, that's unique to Christianity. A couple of weeks back, Matt Chandler was preaching and took that phrase. You know, he said, who else says? Which other religion would ever say, come to me if you're weary and I will refresh you? So there's quite a lot of different passages we could use to say that text could only be uttered in a Christian view of the world and nothing else. But there's another one that I want to throw your way today, and it's the opening sentence of the text we've just heard read, and the opening sentence of this entire new series we're going to be in on Luke called The King and His Kingdom. I want to read it to you, right? It doesn't sound very exciting, but this sentence could not exist in any other belief system than Christianity. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Sentences like that probably don't strike you as very strange. In fact, they probably strike you as quite boring. You're very familiar with the idea that, of course, if God's going to speak, God will speak in history. And yes, it will be in the reign of this person in that area, in this place, when so-and-so is in charge of this bit, and they're in charge of that, and this person's the priest. Sentences like that are commonplace to you because most of us, in fact, all of us, probably in a Christian enough culture to find that idea familiar. And many of us have heard our Bible so often that we already expected to say things like that. Of course, the word of God comes in real time and space, we think. Of course, we can pinpoint divine revelation to particular places or moments or emperors, governors, priests, events, dates. In this place, at that time, God spoke. And we think, of course. But that sentence, if you've read any other religious literature, you'll realize how weird that sentence is. Right, so this last couple of weeks, I read the Upanishads, the Hindu sacred texts, for the first time. And I thought, partly researching this and thinking, this sentence, the idea that God spoke in this place with these events going on, when these people were in charge, that could never appear in the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran. Right, the Quran, Muhammad goes up a mountain, has a vision, comes back down again, writes it down. Nobody can verify anything he said. In fact, there's nothing to verify. He's not saying these are some things that you could test and check out in the real world that actually happened. That's not the kind of writing the Quran is. And in many ways, actually, modern Western people struggle even more with the idea that God might have spoken in real time, in real places, in a piece of wilderness under the reign of this king and that governor and this tetrarch, whatever they are, and this priest. Western people are weirded out by that as well. Because Western people have been trained for the last 200, 300 years to put a big ditch between the spiritual world of, you know, gods and angels and demons and the real world of matter and stuff and dates and history. And so God and religion and faith over there, matter, space and time over there and nothing in the middle. So Immanuel Kant, you know, great philosophers like that would say, you know, you have the realm of the ideal and you have the realm of the real. And there's a gap between the two. 
more familiar reference for this would be Indiana Jones. If you've seen Indiana Jones on the Last Crusade, Harrison Ford is teaching in his classroom and he says, archaeology is the study of fact. And he writes the word fact on his blackboard and says, if you want truth, you go down the hall to the philosophy department. Do you remember that scene? You know, fact is totally different from truth. Truth is a sort of spiritual, numinous thing that we reach for and explore. And, ah, 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 and fact is things that really happen. Do you get that idea? Now, that distinction, which goes back to Kant and before that, really, in Western tradition, that distinction means that a lot of Western people think that if God was going to speak, that's a sort of spiritually kind of event that wouldn't collide with the real practical world of deserts and emperors and governors and priests. In many ways, just another illustration of this point. You remember a couple of weeks ago that the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, visited a, a church, Jesus House in North London, friends of ours, went there and then quickly had to apologise because he found out, you know, he sent this tweet saying, oh, I had no idea what their belief on gay rights was. I'm so sorry I went there. He went to church on Good Friday and had to apologise. And in some ways you think, why, why has that happened? And it's happened in many ways because what people don't want is the idea that the God who is revealed in a religion, the God of, revealed in Jesus Christ that you and I worship and just been worshipping together, might have something to say about the real world of how, who, how people spend their money and who gets to sleep with who and how power is used. You see, what happens is when Keir Starmer does that, there's an outcry because it implies that the God of religion and faith and this realm might speak into this realm in terms of who gets to have sex with who they want. And that really freaks people out. And people say, you can't worship a God who's in charge of everything. No, you've got to keep your God in charge of the spiritual bit. But it's got nothing to do. You dare try and bring it into my bedroom or my bank account or my power structures or whatever else it might be. We don't do God. That's the idea, isn't it? God can stay over there doing his thing. But we're doing this. We're really running the show. And so what we want to do, Western people, is we say, I want to keep God out of space and time. And God, God isn't having it. God says, my children, I created space and time. I made it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The king has a kingdom. It's not just king up there, kingdom down here where we get to. No, the king is in charge of the real world. Abraham Kuyper, Dutch theologian and prime minister, a hundred or hundred years ago, declared there is not one square inch in all of creation over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not cry, that's mine. And it's a lovely comment that every single inch of this world, it is my Father's world. And so Christians, of course, declare things like what like happens in Luke chapter 3. That in the year of all of these things that were actually going on in the real world, God spoke to this person. The word has become flesh. The ideal has become real. The truth, Harrison Ford's truth down the hall, has become fact. And we can touch it and actually investigate it. And as 1 John says, you know, that which we've seen with our eyes and touched with our hands, God has made known to you concerning the word of life. That's what happens in Christianity. And it doesn't happen anywhere else. That the divide between matter, space and time and God and religion and faith has been irrevocably and permanently crossed in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, in the wilderness of the Jordan Valley in southern Israel, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. 
So what was the word of God? I mean, I've given it quite a build up now, right? So get everybody really ready. Okay, so the words come. What did he say? What, did the, what was the word of God through John? And what he said was, verse 3, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's John's message. A baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. As John's preaching, interestingly, it's also how Luke, who writes not just this book, but writes the book of Acts, Luke summarizes Peter's preaching that way as well. Peter preaches the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost, and the crowd say, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So it's a pretty crisp summary of Christian preaching. John the Baptist preaches it, Peter preaches it, and in between, that's how Jesus defines Christian mission as well. Matthew 28, when he sends the church out on mission, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And in Luke 24, when he sends them out, he says, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. In other words, it doesn't matter who you ask, whether you go to John or Jesus or Peter, and if we wanted, we could look at Paul as well. You'd say baptism, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins are bound up with the way people respond to the good news of what God has done in Christ. In other words, that's a pretty good summary of how to respond to the Christian message. Be baptized. Turn to God and leave your old life behind. God is gracious and forgiveness is here. And the rest of this passage then elaborates on those three themes. So I want to start with the, f the first word John says here, baptism of repentance for forgiveness. The first word is the one that John is really famous for, isn't it? We, when we refer to him, we generally call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And so I want to start there. And the first thing to notice when you hear John's preaching is that John is not inviting or suggesting people get baptized. He's, it's a command. Right? He is telling them, you need to do this. It's not a, a suggestion or a hint or an invitation. It is a command. To get baptized is a command from your king. And John delivers that news emphatically and pretty robustly. Now, British people don't do very well with direct instructions, do we? Like that, that's not something that is very much part of our culture. Our whole language, the way we word sentences, is designed to leave direct instructions, unless we're maybe talking to a small child, or on a sports pitch or something, or in the military. But in the vast majority of cases, we word our sentences to sound as unlike a direct instruction as possible. So instead of saying, be baptized, we tend to say things like, would it work for you to consider this invitation to come to our baptism inquiry class? No pressure. That's how British people talk. John the Baptist isn't British. John the Baptist says, be baptized. You need to bury your old life. It's uh, the Britishness thing. I, I saw this wonderful, I don't know if you saw it on, online. It went around a few months back and someone in the church actually retweeted it. It meant I saw it. It really made me laugh. This wonderful table of the way British people talk and what most other people do when they hear it. So, and it was a sort of, you, know, you appear on the screen, but what the British say, what others understand, and what the British mean. So the British say, I hear what you say. And what others understand is, he accepts my point of view. But what the British mean is, I disagree and I don't want to talk about it anymore. Or the British say, with the greatest respect. And what others understand is, he's listening to me. And what the British mean is, 
I think you are an idiot. <laughs> it just goes on like that. It's so funny. And it just line by line, and some of you even just, you could see the rest of them on the screen. But this is what we do. It's like that. We say, quite good. And people think it means quite good, but it actually means a bit disappointing. And all these kinds of things. British people don't really do direct speech. So we find John the Baptist a bit uncomfortable. But look how un-British John is. Have you ever heard a British preacher begin their sermon with the words, you snakes? Because that's what John says. You brood of vipers. John is not British and neither is Peter or Paul or Jesus. And so they are very happy to command people, you need to get baptized. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to obey God and get baptized. This is God's word to you, by the way. This isn't just God's word to them. It's God's word to you. You want to follow Jesus, you need to obey God and get baptized. That's a command. It's not just a suggestion. Your pathway to freedom runs through water, just like Israel's did when they left during, on the Exodus night. They were going to get freedom, it was over there, and there's a big body of water in between. And the New Testament uses their journey through that water as a picture of baptism and the importance of finding freedom through water. Your new life starts as you bury the old one and turn your grave into a dance floor. That's how the Christian life begins. And that's what the people all do. And in the story, of course, even Jesus, the sinless one, gets baptised. Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so do we. And as part of our response today, some of us, the best response you could give to this message is as soon as we run an in-service, an in-person baptism service, which we will very shortly now, get baptized as a response of obedience to the Lord Jesus. So John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But having said that, John's focus in this passage is actually more on repentance than it is on baptism. If you read just this passage, you might not call him John the Baptist. You might call him John the Repentance Preacher. Because John spends a lot of time talking about the need to turn away, turn around, leave your old life behind and turn towards God. Because without repentance, getting baptised is hypocrisy. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> Not very seeker sensitive. And he said, it's no good appealing to your ancestry either. He literally almost says, don't even think about it. He says, don't even begin to say to yourself, we've got Abraham as our father. He says, doesn't matter who your father is. God can raise up children for Abraham from the stones. What matters is, is your heart turned towards God? Have you left your old life behind and repented? Have you done a U-turn? Have you said, I was heading for me, 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 and now I'm turning around and heading for God, God, God. And if I haven't done that, then don't you even think about getting baptised as if somehow being part of Abraham's family is a right you have by birth. It's not. You need to repent. And he says, repentance produces fruit, visible, tangible evidence of your surrender. So he says in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Apple trees produce apples naturally they're not straining to do it they just naturally do it's how you know that their dna is that of an apple tree and in the same way john is saying your dna if you are genuinely a repentant person it will produce fruit right and it'll take time and you'll have ups and downs and you will as the rest of scripture indicates you won't always get it right but your natural posture will be one of repentance and your natural fruit will be one of godliness life change 
And so what happens is John says, you want to, you, I, I'm telling you to get baptized. And then, but then he says, but don't get baptized unless you're repentant. Right? That's no good. What you need is to say, is, is my heart turned away? Have I renounced the right to be in charge of my own life and instead yielded to God? Have I come to that place, which I often quote from the Heidelberg Catechism? Have you come to the place of saying, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own? Have you got to that point and saying, I'm not, I don't want to be mine anymore. I'm terrible at running my own life. I want Jesus to be in charge of my life. And if you have, you'll find, John says, you're going to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So the people ask him, like what? You know, what does that look like for me? And John says, well, share your food and your clothing. Verse 11. Don't abuse the authority you have to gain money or power over people. In verses 12 and 13. That's a fascinating one, isn't it? So one of the first things you hear in the New Testament. What does a repentant life look like? Don't abuse your authority to get more money or more power. Verse 14. Tell the truth. Don't accuse people falsely and be content with your wages. These are very practical teachings, aren't they? They say, you, if I've got, okay, Lord, if I've got a repentant heart, what will it produce? What kind of fruit will it produce? And John says, oh, these very real, sticky, practical things in your life. It's not just religious fruit, although, of course, it, you know, people who are repentant pray and read our Bible and share the gospel and do lots of, you know, lots of wonderful other things as well. But John starts by saying it'll change the way that your ordinary dealing with your neighbor or your money or your family, all of those things will change as a result of your repentant heart. And people are so struck by the power of John's preaching that they ask if he's the Christ. So John has to deal with that, with that question and says, no, I'm not. I'm baptizing with you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Verse 16. I have the authority, John says, to drench you in water. But Jesus has the authority to drench you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what is the fire? You know, what, what does that mean? Some people assume that John is using it to mean what we might mean if we said someone was fiery, like drenched in the Holy Spirit and passion, or something like that, or power. But John actually uses the word fire three times in this passage. I don't know if you noticed that. And in the other two cases, it clearly refers to judgment. So in verse 9, he says, All the trees that don't bear good fruit are cut down and thrown into the fire. And in verse 17, he says, Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, gather the wheat into the barn, and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So when in verse 16, he says, he is coming to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire, I think it's likely he's talking about judgment there as well. In other words, he's not saying, I'm going to baptize believers in fire. He's saying, I'm going to baptize believers, repentant, baptized people in the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to baptize people who reject this message in fire. I think that's probably what he means here. And all three of those images, if you like, wheat and chaff, fruit or no fruit, and drenched in the Spirit or fire, they're all making the same point. That there is a fundamental difference that happens in a person when they make the U-turn, when they repent and are baptized. When they turn from following themselves or worshiping other gods to turn towards the Lord, that U-turn makes all the difference in the world. And John went proclaiming a baptism of repentance. But praise God, it's not just a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins. Because the point of baptism is not just to bury your old life, it's to rise again to a new one. The aim of repentance is not just for you, and I mean, I'm talking to you, it's not just for you to grieve your failures, it's for you to receive God's forgiveness for them. That's the point. And you have to grieve your failures to get to forgiveness because if you don't want forgiveness, you don't want to apologize or you don't want to repent, then you won't ask for it. But it's not that you spend your time wallowing what a bad person you are. It's that God then pours out his grace and forgiveness over your life in response to the fact that you have recognized that you need to turn your life around with his power. So I've got this with my son at the moment. He's 12. We, face, we have conflicts. And it's about all manner of things. Um, we had some today, probably will have some tomorrow and so on. But sometimes we get to a point where he has to reach a place of, he, he cries as a result of the confrontation we're having over his behavior. And he, might, and he might cry, sometimes he does. And he will go away and spend some time in his room and then he'll come and say sorry. But I never let him stand at a distance and say, I'm sorry. I'll say, come here, come here. And as you reconcile, the aim of this process is the hug, not the tears, right? That's what I want. I, the tears might be a thing I have to go through to get to the hug because I want to make sure he's understood what's happened and why it was a problem. But that's not where I, I don't want to stay crying. I don't want him to be crying at all. The aim is the hug, not the tears. And what God is doing and in John's preaching and Jesus's and Paul's and Peter's and many others, in Christian preaching, the aim of God for your life is the hug, not the tears. He's not wanting you to spend all your time saying, I'm just such a terrible sinner. He's like, you do need to see you're a terrible sinner, but in order that then you might come to me and receive the Father's affection and delight over your life, because you are now united with Christ through repentance, faith, and baptism, and you are mine, and I love you. And that's what this whole passage is driving towards. That's what John declares about Jesus. He says he'll baptize you with the Spirit. That's what he wants to do, to drench you in the Spirit. That's what God's hope for you is. God wants to pour out his Holy Spirit over your life. He wants to unite you with Jesus and he wants to bring the words of the Father in affirmation over your life. This is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, and I'm very pleased with them. That's where, that's where this passage goes in Jesus and it's where God wants to take you. And so the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is not supposed to stop with the sin and the realization or even the U-turn is meant to build towards the drenching in the Spirit, the unity with Christ, and the affirmation of the Father, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are one of his people, and he loves you, and he's very pleased with you. It's a beautiful picture. What, what happens here at the end is, as Jesus goes into the water, and the Spirit descends, and the Father speaks these words of affirmation, that is a wonderful picture of what happens to you and me when we experience the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We are united with Christ. The Spirit descends on us. In Jesus' case, like a dove. In the case of John, like just being drenched in the Holy Spirit. And all of our sins are washed away. And our Heavenly Father declares, My son, my daughter, I love you. And I'm very, very pleased with you. That's where John's preaching wants to take us today. 
And so as we begin this series, the king and his kingdom, we're going to find this kingdom is full of forgiveness. Luke is going to keep going on about it. He's going to tell us all sorts of stories in this gospel that the other gospel writers don't mention, but they're all about forgiveness, about a sinful woman being forgiven and about who gets forgiven the biggest debt and about a a father whose son wanders from home and then turns around and the father forgives him. And even Luke will tell us that as Jesus is dying, he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It's going to be everywhere in this gospel, but that's God's plan for you, that you might not just be baptised in repentance, although yes, that, but that you then might find the forgiveness of sins that comes as a guarantee from those who turn from their old life and trust in Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our fellow humans in thought and word and deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. And we are truly sorry. We repent of all our sins for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Forgive us all that is past and grant that we might serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen.